Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Megan Lee. Joining us for this episode is Jane Yolen. Having started out writing a neighbourhood newspaper, which she sold to buy candies and comics, she is now the author of over 400 books for children and adults. Jane has also worked as an editor, has written poetry, and was described by Newsweek as the Hans Christian Andersen of American children's literature. On her website, Jane has numerous sections which cater for teachers, children, and writers, and she has plenty of wisdom to share with all those groups. Today, she's going to share some of her creative wit and wisdom with us, as well as talk about her newest book, The Scarlet Circus, which is a collection of short stories around the theme of love in all its forms. The book has an introduction from none other than Brandon Sanderson, who describes Jane as a lifelong influence. The collection will be released, appropriately, on the 14th of February this year. Jane, thank you for joining us. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your books. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I have a uh, an enormous amount of books out there. It's almost embarrassing. It's 417 with 37 under contract. Um, you must think that I write all the time, and you'd be pretty close to that. I love writing. So I write a poem a day and send it out to subscribers, and I write my on my work work every day. I get dressed up in the morning as if I were going out somewhere uh, to an office, and then I come, I don't put any shoes on, <laughs> I just pad pad through the big house here and come and sit down at my writing room and, and go. And I may be working for five to seven hours during the day, uh, but I love it. And I've loved it ever since I first started writing. I mean, I, I wrote a poem in first grade. And and the amusing thing is my daughter, uh, Heidi Stemple, who is uh, well-published, she has about 40 books out herself. Um, she's Her newest book that's going to be coming out is a book called Janie Writes, and it's about me. And I just oh. wept she told me. I just wept. Um, but I discovered fantasy and science fiction when I was quite young. And... I think the Arthurian books were the first books that that and um, Alice in Wonderland caught my fantasy. My father and mother gave me, they were big readers and they were both writers. My mother did crossword, made crossword puzzles and double cross sticks. Um, and uh, there were books everywhere in the house and none of them were off limits to me. So I read over my head for years because I was reading in their library. But they gave me one, I can't remember if it was for my birthday or if it was for Christmaco, as we've always called it, because we celebrate both Christmas and Hanukkah. I had, um, they gave me a book of both, it was, it was both of the Alice in Wonderland and Alice with the Looking Glass in a boxed edition with the Tenniel illustrations. And that I still own. And I love. So between Alice in Wonderland and and all of the Arthurian stuff, I was on my way very early to loving to read and loving to write this kind of stuff. And there's even an Alice story in your current collection. So, you know, even now you're still referring back to it. So how many things have Alice in Wonderland inspired over the years? Is it just that one story that you thought you'd go and revisit or have oh, you? No, I'm, I'm trying to sell a collection called All Mimsy. And I have a collection of stories and um, probably about 10, 12, 15 maybe stories um, and I just have written a Jewish version, uh, a picture book called Ari, uh, Ari and the Jagger. And it's a little girl who is Jewish who, who, um, comes and finds the Beamisher boy. Um, he's not the Beamish boy. So it's a Jewish version of, of, uh, it. I haven't sold it yet. Just sent it out to its first place. Oh, well, I look forward to seeing it soon and being, 
book number 400 and where are we now? Well, we're up to 417. 417. So I look forward to what? book 418. <laughs> what? That's insane. That's impressive. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, this is a story that I've just found out about. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the romance writer called Barbara Carlin. I've never read any of her books. Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> she used to lie down on her bed and she would have a... Um, her whatever her PA or her or her assistant or her person who would she would dictate her next her next novel so she never put her fingers on <laughs> the keys she just dictated it to a novel uh, the not the new novel which sounded evidently just like the old novel only with different names and different clothes um, and so that's not what I do I I do I do. Um, novels, poetry, picture books, middle grade, nonfiction, fiction, uh, science fiction, fantasy. Um, and I used to tell people that I, the only thing I don't do is um, romance, Western uh, stories, or um, oh, oh, sports stories. Turns out I've written several sorts, several short. Um, picture books that are sports stories. And I've, uh, years and years ago, wrote a book, uh, wrote a picture book that was set in the Old West. And I have a new one. It's a picture book set in the Old West that's coming out. Um, and now I've written romance. Who knew? Well, with that many books on you about, I'm sure you must have touched on romance at some point. I mean, that was a, a really interesting thing in the first part of Scarlet Circus called A Little Bit of Loving, which I thought was a fascinating insight into your writing. And I really liked your idea when you put in the Google definition of love, which is a feeling of excitement and mystery associated with love. Like, what about my Prius? Do I love my Prius, my dog, my grandkids, my country? There's no ram romance there, but there is still love. And I thought that was a really nice distinction to make. Well, the the thing is, this is coming out for the, it's about the third or fourth anniversary of my new marriage. And, and, um, my, my first husband, lovely man, um, died at 69. So, so much that he's missed, so much. Uh, we had three children, six grandchildren. And, um, uh, I was a widow for 15, 16 years. And in the 16th or 17th year, I remet a boy that I had, well, not a boy now, but you know, a man, but a boy that I had dated in college for two months. We spent the two months because he was the poet from Williams College and I was the poet from Smith College. And we, we um, were introduced by somebody who said, oh, you should meet because the they didn't like poetry, but boy, they could give me or give him to the to the poet from the other college. And we spent two wonderful months um, going back and forth between Smith and, and Williams talking about Emily Dickinson, the poet. And that was the first thing we did was we went and we met at the Emily Dickinson Museum. And now we are together. So it's a very romantic moment in my life that I should have these this these stories of romance coming out. You mentioned poetry as being something that, you know, was in your relationship quite early on. And I noticed you said earlier that you send out a poem every day. And I just wondered how on earth yeah. you get an inspiration. <laughs> inspiration. Sorry, it's just, I clocked that as well, a poem every day. That just blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> well, I, let, me, let me put it this way. I've been doing that for 18 years. Um, but this year, because, well, I'm, you know, I'm slowing down. Sometimes there are health issues. Sometimes we're traveling. So some days I have to write two or three poems to try to catch up because I've missed three days. Today I haven't sent one out yet. Um, are they all good? No, of course not. How could they possibly be? Um, they are all 
I'm, I'm dealing every day with new new issues of one kind or another. Maybe it's the weather. Maybe I've seen a deer outside my my house. Maybe I've seen the bears outside my house. Yes, I have bears outside my. I actually had a bear on my porch who decided to come and sleep for a while on my porch. Um, so those things all are little snapshots of my life, and sometimes they are. My, my very angry <laughs> political poems, and sometimes they are love poems, and sometimes they are hate poems, and sometimes they are, oh my God, I haven't written um, anything, so I better get something down on the page poems. But it becomes finger exercises for me usually in the morning when I'll write a poem, um, go over it a couple of times, and then send it out. And it wakes up the brain, it wakes up the fingers, it wakes up that part of me that likes to put words together. So it's better than drinking a cup of tea, and I don't drink coffee at all. So it's my wake-up call, usually, to myself, to the writer inside of me. I love it. And I think routine is so important for writers. And yeah, I really need to get back into my writing routine. But we we really wanted to talk to you about like, um, sort of because you have been in the industry for such a long time, it's really, an, you know, a unique perspective and one we don't really get to talk to a lot. So, I mean, you we wanted to talk to you about who you found inspirational. Obviously, you mentioned, you know, Alice in Wonderland, which is again really it's quite nice because that was one of the earliest books that got me into fantasy as well and and that's really um it's cool that it's it's you know continues that the same book continues to really spark children's imaginations but I was wondering you know when it comes to specifically like science fiction and fantasy you know who was it that you were reading as a teenager as a young adult that really sort of got you into writing within the genre Dirty Secret. Uh, okay. Secret? Yes, lay it on me. I had a friend in high school who subscribed to or had copies of a book that my parents would never have let me read. It was the comic books um, that were called, um, oh God, I forget its name now, but it was really horror comic, Witch's Crypt, I think, or The Crypt. And I would bring them home from school in my book bag and then put one down the front of my, of my dress or my pants, whatever I'd worn to school and go into the bathroom, shut the door, lock it so my brother didn't come in. And I would sit there and read the crypt. And they actually took some, some short stories that I had read and made them into comics. Um, and that was, that was the hardcore stuff. I did it, and I, I don't really like that much that's real horror horror, but the shivers reminded me that sometimes when you're writing, you have to go deep into that kind of world. Um, not just write, you know, uh, pretty little girls triple, tripping, you know, the light fantastic with the fairies. And the other things, I was reading, um, uh, I was, I, I was, when I was in college, I was majoring um, in literature and minoring in Russian literature and translation. And uh, some of that stuff was really powerful and right on the edge of the fantastic because in a way Russia was this fantastical world in in that of nothing like I had ever known uh, so you have to say that 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 uh, um, Chekhov and and um, Tolstoy and I love Dostoevsky um, that that brought me closer to that dark world the Dostoevsky uh, than anything. But it also reminded me of how much I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be in the fairyland world. 
That's yeah, that, that's an interesting range of inspirations. Like I can't really say we've had many people say that, you know, these dark Russian stories were an inspiration, but I completely understand, you know, that idea of the well, the appeal of the escapism of speculative fiction and also I for me personally, I like that speculative fiction allows you to explore the world we have and sometimes I think, you know, from different angles that that you might not see otherwise, but also it, I, I find that it's easier to do hope without being a little bit too sentimental somehow because it's not quite real. So somehow it's not as soppy, If you, but you can still have like a really nice, hopeful, optimistic story, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been ve- very deep. I was very deep for a while into the science fiction fantasy uh, world. I was actually president of the um, uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America for two years for my sins. Um, But I've never been a hardcore science fiction. We have to talk all about the science first. and and, And if there are some people lagging in there, well, we'll just mention them kind of books. I was a fantasy um, reader and writer rather than a science. Every once in a while, I'll write a science fictional uh, book, but it doesn't have a whole lot of, or a short story, but it doesn't have a whole lot of science in it. I mean, with so many books written and under contract and a poem every day, I imagine your days are pretty busy. But if you do sit down to read a book now, are there any authors that you find yourself coming back to? Do you still come back to your early influences or do you read some new and upcoming authors? Or what does that look like when you're, what does your to be read pile look like? I just read a book. I'm trying to remember the name of the author. Um, I wrote it down somewhere because I loved the book so much. Um, But it was called, the Bear and the Nightingale. Yes. Great place in Russia. Yes. And it felt like a Russian novel, but with totally out there fantastic elements. And um, I mean, these days, because I have to tell you, my father and his family, he was born and brought up till he was seven years old in Ukraine. So I'm Ukrainian, partially Ukrainian. And the old house was still there. And some of my cousins, my younger cousins, more adventurous cousins, went and saw the house and met the people who were living in there. And three months ago, the Russians bombed it. It's gone. The house? Oh. The house. Yeah. So I'll never be able to see it. I'll never be able to visit it. But... Still, the Russian stories. I wrote a I wrote a book fairly recently um, uh, that was a Baba Yaga verse novel called Finding Baba Yaga, and Baba Yaga is is my culture hero um, because she is the great witch who loves young women and cannot stand naughty boys. She'll eat the naughty boys. The young women she'll she'll train, um, and and uh, I have a friend who's uh, a writer friend whose name you will laugh at, but I love it. It's her her name is <laughs> last name is Dragon Wagon. Dragon Wagon. <laughs> yes, I have to tell you, she she and her um, I don't know when she was young and she was foolish and she ran off with um I think they were two sixteen year olds or eighteen year olds who ran off together and in the hippie days and decided that neither one liked the other one's last name. So they were going to make up one that they could both have. And they came up with dragon wagon. <laughs> it's a uh, crescent dragon wagon. Is that who you mean? Right. She's a good friend. And of course I apologize to crescent crest because I've forgotten your name. Um, but um, she and I, when we see each other, and we don't see each other very much because she's living way down in the South right now of America. And I live up in the North. Um, but we, we talk, but we call each other, you know, we're both the Babas. And I say, you know, she says, how are you, comrade Baba? And I say, oh, let me tell you how I am. 
and you know, we just, we go through this and everybody looks at us like we're crazy and we're having such fun doing it. Um, but so, so the Russian stories, the fairy tales, the folklore, that's where I really am at. So do I, the, 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 book that I just read, the, the, the Bear and the Nightingale, just blew me away. I, I've read a lot of stuff that has a lot of, of, of uh, the people that I like and the, and, and, the, and the fairy stuff that I like that's badly written. This one is so brilliantly written, and evidently it was a first novel. I remember reading it, and, and I enjoyed it. And there's another couple, isn't there, um, about a witch yes. and a girl in a tower and things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you like that, you might like um, Spinning Silver by um, Naomi Novi. That was another one that I thought was in the same sort of vein that I really liked. But I wanted, you were talking about fairy tales and I was reading your collection earlier and two of your stories that sort of have a fairy tale theme to it involve three daughters with one of the children who's not quite as beautiful or quite as talented as her sisters and yet she still manages to find her happy ending, usually through untraditional means. So... I wondered if they, you know, had a particular resonance with you when you read them in fairy tales, because obviously a lot of fairy tales are like, oh, the youngest son and the, you know, the youngest daughter and all this kind of thing, whether that was part of it and whether you put them in longer works as well, because they seem like sort of characters that are just ripe for their own reinvention. When I'm writing the fairy tales, somehow they just happen. Um, A novel you have to plan but uh, a little more than I do. Um, I'm always surprised. Uh, let me back up and say, in novel writing, there, there seem to be two kinds of approaches. One is everything is planned out ahead. My, my son, Adam Stemple, writes that kind of a novel. He sits and he brainstorms and he world builds and he plots. And I just say... I start from the beginning and I go to the end. And what happens, happens because of what I what I am learning as I go along. And the people who are plotters, um, I envy, but I can't do that. And the, the people who are plotters and who don't like the idea of not plotting call those of us who don't plot, um, uh, what do they call us? Pantsers, because we're going by the seat of our pants. And it's a very nasty kind of, you're a pantser. I say, I fly into the mist. Oh, we really need Lucy here because she and I are just like this. I'm an absolute plotter and she's an absolute flying in the mist girl. We'll, we'll have to tell her that because she'll love that. Good. good. Um, I don't know where we were. We were somewhere else. I just went on to a, a little tangent there. We were talking about fairy tales and particularly sort of the third character being one who goes and finds her own sort of story because she's not beautiful, she's not necessarily talented, but she's got her own mm-hmm. kind of skills. Or she's, been, or she's been brutalized or she's had her hands cut off or she's or she's been thrown out into the trash. Um, I, I used to teach a course in um, – in a children's literature at Smith College for seven years. And by going back and rereading hundreds of folk and fairy tales, because I wanted to talk about them, I realized that we so often um, are falling into the trap of, of uh, oh, what a horrible thing, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but she comes out all right at the end. And I... I I, I look at two fairy tales always with them and I say, all right, tell me what's good about this fairy tale at the end. Let's look at, at, um, Snow White. All right. She, she's run away from a horrible situation, but she finds a good situation with these wonderful dwarves. Um, seven dwarves. Well, you might sort of think they're all men and she's a woman. Is this a wonderful situation? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Maybe she's back having to do all the work, but they're working too. They're working out in the mines. So I'm giving that one a little pass. Um, and then the wicked witch comes and finds her and gives her a poison apple and she falls over and they think she's dead. They come home from the mines and, oh, she's dead. 
Um, so they put her in a glass casket. Now, why a glass casket? Because they want to look at her. They want to keep her. They want to be able to see. But along comes a prince who falls in love with a dead girl in a casket, a glass casket. Now, no one ever asks why this guy, he pays them money to buy the girl, the dead girl in the glass casket. Why does a prince want a dead girl in a glass casket? Now, there may be, there are three, three, three things that, that immediately come to mind. He's going to use her to put the casket on his coffee table and have the most interesting coffee table in the kingdom. Um, he's a necrophile, a necrophile. He wants to defile the dead girl's body. Um, and the third thing I worry about is once, once the, his men pick up the casket, and the and 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 the girl rattles to the side, and one you know one one man stumbles a little bit, so the girl rattles from the side. The piece of of poison apple falls out of her mouth, and she sits up, maybe banging her head on on the top of the casket. What is the prince going to do now? He bought a dead girl, and now she's alive and talking. No one ever looks at that part of the fairy tale. And that's the part that fascinates me. I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to look at Snow White the I same. Know. <laughs> I was going to say that. I don't think I can look at it the same now. I'll just be thinking of a coffee table every time I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want? Do you, I could also do that to Sleeping Beauty if you'd like. Oh, please! I want to hear that one. <laughs> All right, Sleeping Beauty. In the original, older version of the tale, maybe not the original original, but one of the older versions of the tale is the Italian story in which the prince comes along, sees the sleeping girl. She's beautiful. He's horny and he rapes her. And she wakes up a mother of two. Why does she wake up? When she, she gives birth to the babies, it's only when they, they're hungry and they're crawling up her body to find something to suck on that one of them finds the finger with, with the, um, uh, the, the needle from that, that, that stuck in her hand, which had put her to sleep, right? And it's, he sucks it, he or she sucks it out of the mother's hand and she wakes up and sees she's a mother of twins. And the rest of the story is about her finding the prince. Uh, again, basically saying, you did this to me. These are your kids. I'm now the princess. Um, but the other thing is, he comes in, whether it's, whether it's to kiss her um, when she's sleeping, when she cannot give permission, um, even if you don't have it as an assault on her, that is an assault. He's kissing her without her permission. He is finding this girl who looks to all the world like she's just asleep. Why does he have the right to do that? It always uh, makes me curious because a lot of these stories were supposedly told, you know, as moral tales. And I mean, what is the moral of that? Because it feels like if there was a moral from, say, the original Sleeping uh -huh. Beauty, it's it's probably the wrong one because the one that it should be about, like, I, I don't know, is it don't fall asleep in case a prince comes in and rapes you in your sleep? Like, what is the story there? <laughs> I don't <laughs> what I love to do is go deeper and deeper, whether it's just talking to other people about it or in my stories, to take those those stories and parse them differently. Does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. I love that. Just thinking, yeah, th just thinking differently about it. Like, like I always think about the uh, Beauty and the Beast story and, you know, Stockholm Syndrome and things like that. And it's, yeah, it's, it's nice to look at something from a different angle. Yeah. But yeah. sort of on that, you know, this collection, you, from what I understand, these are stories that you've written over 
a number of years that you've come and, and collected together. And so you must have sort of gone back and reread loads of things that you previously written, previously published. I mean, do you find that you were coming back to the same kinds of themes or the same sorts of stories you wanted to tell in different ways? Or did you maybe like have periods in your life when you started to tell different stories or, or became preoccupied with a certain style? When I came back to the stories, because because we we meaning we uh, the editor and I um, w- agreed on a theme, um, and I would go and see if I had enough stories for the thing, or should I write a new one or new poems for it, and I I was startled because many of these stories I didn't remember because they had been so long ago. And because they're short stories, um, I didn't live in them as long as I do when you live in a novel or even when you live in a picture book. Um, So honestly, some of them uh, are not in any of the collections because I looked at them and I said, oh, terrible. (laughs) I don't want want this one to see the light of day again. Um, But others of them, I went, wow. I don't remember writing this, but it is definitely my story and it is my style and it has my name on it. Therefore, it has to be my story. Um, And that I found fascinating. How, if you write a lot, you can forget a lot too. That's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that comes back to the whole idea of, you know, putting your book in a drawer for a while before you go back to edit it because then you're seeing it with fresh eyes. Sometimes, you know, I look back at things and go, oh my God, that's terrible. How did I, oh, oh, oh. And then other things I can read again and go, wow, that's actually much better than I remembered. <laughs> it's. I sometimes think, oh, did uh, the story fairy come in <laughs> and fix it for me? Did the muse come by and, and change some words? I really want a story fairy. That sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about books and stories that you would go back, you go, oh, no, not at all. In all of the books you've written, and this might take a little while to think through all of them, but in all of them that you've written, is there one that you go, you know what, that's just it, it's perfect, I'm just not going to touch it. It it is exactly what I wanted to say at the time, and it's still exactly what I want to say now. There are two books. Um, One is a time travel novel uh, called The Devil's Arithmetic which takes a, a Jewish girl back in time uh, to the time of the Holocaust. And she comes there bringing them news that this is before the, the people are starting to be rounded up and she tries to warn them. And of course, it's too late. It's too close to the time where they are going to be. Um, and, and she ends up in Auschwitz with the rest of the, the um, people who are in the little town that she has been uh, time traveled back to, um, and I would—I don't think I'd change a word of that. Uh, and the other one is a picture book called Owl Moon, which is really about my daughter and her dad going out owling together on a, a on a on a dark night in the winter time in New New England, um, which my husband used to do with the children. He would take them out owling, take them out birding, so. Um, those are the only two books that I wouldn't touch. I think everything else I'd probably go back and change. Maybe not now, maybe a year from now, maybe three years from now, maybe when I come back in another form. I'm sorry, I have to ask, what is owling? It sounds intriguing. You go out with your field glasses and you call down owls. You go, How do you call down owls? This is getting better all the time. That's amazing. Um, now they have apps. You just go out. With <laughs> but they answer you and they will do what is called duetting with you because they think you're another owl. And um, they'll come and look and then they'll go, oh, gee, that's only a person. And they fly off. Um but but it's wonderful. My daughter actually uh, 
used to go out owling as an adult with her dad um, for the for the Audubon uh, Christmas bird count. And the highest that they ever got together um, with their group. It's a group. It's a group project, um, and it goes from midnight till seven in the morning. Um, and the, and the the uh, the most that they got around here was thirty three owls in one night. Heidi, after her dad died, took over because she was an adult, uh, and she took over. Um, and um, she lives in a house that we built next door door to our house when my husband was dying. Um, and she uh, she put together a group called the OMG. Um, and that stands for Al Moon Gang. And Great they go name. Out. <laughs> yes. And they go out uh, on, on uh, I think it's like two or three nights before Christmas, um, and uh, an owl all night long. And one night she got, they got, her group got 66 owls. How do you know it's not the same owl just flying around and back again? Because they go to different places. I always see. So the the they humans move. Got they it. Have, they have cars, and they 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 do it for a while here, and and sometimes it's a barred owl, and sometimes it's a, a screech owl, and sometimes it's a, another kind of owl. So they know. Oh, if we've gotten three owls here, now we go to another because owls are very territorial. You move if you move X number of you know um, places down it's going to be another group of owls. It's not going to be the same ones. And this, you did a, a picture book about this. Have you worked it into any of your adult fiction as well? Because I totally want that book. <laughs> um, and I did a, I did a short story um, about owling, but I, I don't think I did any. And, and, and it's, it, it's a um, seriously nasty story. So I have not put it in, in any of the uh, collections because it didn't fit. I'm just honestly not sure where to go with the next question after owling. I feel like I've, I've got a whole new <laughs> hobby opening up in front of me. This is amazing. I'm going to see you in Britain. Find, find your, there'll be a local um, group, especially in Britain. You love, you love birds and birding there. Um, and ask Around, there will be a bird group, probably somewhere near you. See if somebody would take you out owling one night. Would you take me out owling really does sound like it should be a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> no, not for birders. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Wow. I, I don't think I've ever learned so much in one podcast session at all. Uh, Megan, please pick a question because I am <laughs> I don't know where to go now. So... We were interested because you have been in the industry for for quite a while. So, you know, have you seen, well, I should say, preface that with, <laughs> we are, as you know, you know, a feminist podcast looking at representations for women, especially in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. So it's it's interesting for us to talk to someone who has seen changes in the industry over a number of years. And we were wondering, you know, if you have actually noticed any changes for women in writing in the industry or how we're represented in the, you know in books in in the popular narratives and or if you're i don't know maybe you're super disappointed that there's still the same bs now as there was when you started i was just yeah interested in in your thoughts on that it's there has been a huge change but in various parts of the industry. For example, I, I was, um, let me first, first, let me back up a minute and tell you how I got into, to writing and into the industry itself. Okay. Uh, yeah. Both my, parents, both my parents, as I said, were writers and all of their friends seem to be writers, people like um, James Thurber <laughs> and Hemingway to drop a few names. Um, and, so I assumed, knowing that when I went outdoors, I would see, you know, teachers and bakers and uh, librarians and, and newsmen and, and, and doctors, that they were all men. Um, but I assumed that when um, I grew up, 
I would have a day job and my night job would be writing. Okay. So that's, that's, that sets where, where I started from. Um, it wasn't women could, couldn't write, men could, but just grown-ups versus children. So I'm a child. Okay. I can practice writing, but when I'm a grown-up, I will have a real job. Plus I will be a writer. I'll have a grown-up job during the day. I'll be a writer at night. And that, in some sense, came true. But when I, I, I worked for Newsweek for a while um, one summer, and I also worked for another magazine uh, another summer during college days, I went to an all-girls school, an all-girls college, so that that my sense of what women could do was sort of formed there as well, because these were smart women and they were going into medicine and they were going into research and they were going into um, uh, writing and they were going. So, so that, that persuaded me, I think, to be a feminist before we were really feminists. Um, it was the same um, university that a number of very famous women came out of. Um, and, and, and so when, when I started in the industry as an, as an editor, first an editorial assistant, I was in, uh, in adult books. That was very male. The women were still mostly in the lower echelons. But when I went into children's books, women were everywhere. And the reason I found out much later was that in, I think it was 1918, the head of Macmillan um, said to the woman who was his assistant, who typed all his letters, you know, who, who, who made everything tidy, he said, we have some books for children that have come out, but, you know, just in our regular, our regular uh, uh, output, but we've, we've decided that we should have a, a, something that's really just a, a section of Macmillan that will be books for children. And um, I want to make you head of it because you're a woman and you know children. So wow, <laughs> she didn't know how to edit. I mean, she she learned, but she didn't. I mean, she didn't know how to do that. But she knew publishing because she was in she was in his office. She saw it going on all around. There weren't really women editors. There were women who might work there, but they weren't actually the editors. Suddenly, she had carte blanche to hire female editors, and for the longest time. There were female editors, mostly. Occasionally, there would be a man who was head of the department, but mostly it was female editors. By the time I got into it in the 19, it would have been the 1963, 60, 62, 63, something like that, um, uh, the, what I learned when I was was first editing books was that I'm a good writer because I was reading ghastly stuff. Every once in a while, something wonderful would pass my desk and I would pass it on to the editor-in-chief, but, but mostly it was ghastly. Um, but women now not only are all through the children's book industry, but they are heads of all the departments and and are have infiltrated the children's book editors i have to say make less money than the adult book editors for the most part um but it was um it was a learning experience to 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 see how how women especially um worked within within um, an editorial office which was very um, convivial and, and, um, at least where I was at Knopf and then later on at, um, Harcourt, um, was convivial and was very, um, I don't know what the word is, but we worked together very, very well. Um, 
I heard from other people that there was a little more tension within the the adult book sections. I don't know how to feel about the idea that a guy just turns to his secretary and goes, you're a woman, you know about children. Off you go. There's, there's the children's book publishing industry. But I suppose in a weird way, whatever opportunities were going, it's it's a way to get in. And I mean, what <laughs> what a jump in you know promotion. Like you said, she was then able to offer jobs to other women. So I kind of, on the one hand, feel quite insulted, but on the other hand, quite thrilled by that story. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, it's, it's one of those things where you want to punch him in the nose, uh, but you want to say, take the job, honey, take the job. I know. It's like, I'll, I won't punch you in the nose because actually I can do a lot more influence by just taking it and smiling and going and just running my own department. That's just... Oh, exactly, I'm- exactly. <laughs> I would like to talk about something that um, Mr. Jovanovich of Harcourt Brace Jovanovich told me once uh, when I was working at Harcourt and I had my own imprint. And he said, publishing goes in seven-year cycles. He said, and that's when, when you have, if one book starts here and it makes a big splash for seven years, it's the splashy one, but people are following it. If you want to publish a book like that one, you need to publish it in the first, second, third, or fourth years, because by the fourth year, if you find a book like that, you're not going to be able to get it out until the sixth or the seventh year. Uh, So by then, people are on to something else. And I never forgot that. I mean, I don't know if that's technically true about every book, but those kinds of cycles where people are writing one thing is so big and everybody then takes after it and tries to tries to uh, um, get on it, ride, it ride, ride its tail to glory. And, and it feels to me like that we're still thinking in that way. Um, and, and I've always just ignored those major splashy things and just written what I've want, wanted to write. Sometimes they're leaders, sometimes they're followers, but they're always something I want to write. Not, I, I don't necessarily think anything's going to make me big money. It's always a surprise if it does. I always remember going to an event with Barry Cunningham, who he was. He now runs Chicken House Books, and he was the editor of the first Harry Potter novels. And he was saying about trends like that, and he's saying at the moment. This shows how how long ago it was. I saw it at the moment. It's vampire babies that are the trend because he was talking about the third Twilight novel, and he made the observation that, like you say, the vamp- the Twilight novels were making a huge splash. But people who were then responding to that and writing and sending their stuff in, it was already too late. The people who were benefiting from that were the people who'd already written a good vampire story, had already sent it in. So when it was already on the slush pile and ready to go, as soon as this craze hit the newspapers. Uh, but let me give you let me give you another story Ooh. that that weighs still heavily on my mind. Eight years, eight years before Harry Potter, I came out with a book called Wizard's Hall. The boy was named Henry. His mother thought that he should go to Wizard's Hall. Um, but he knew that he didn't have any magic in him, but he went off anyway. Um, when he got there, he, he, um, saw that the pictures on the walls moved and changed and talked. He found a, a redheaded best friend and a, in this instance, black girl who was the smartest kid in the school who became his best friends. And together, the three of them managed to, um, save Wizards Hall from the wicked wizard who used to work at that school and was trying to destroy it. Does that sound familiar? Gosh, that does sound incredibly familiar. I, I couldn't possibly comment on what other stories might sound a little bit like that. And that was how many years did you say? Eight, Eight years. <laughs> <laughs> I still get children writing to me when they read that story, especially if the teacher has introduced it to them. They'll go up to their teacher and say, she stole from from Harry Potter. And then the teacher says, look at when the book was written, published. Look where Harry, Harry Potter was written. Then they send me a letter saying, are you going to sue her? 
And I said, you know, no, because we were both coming from the same place. We read the same books. We, we, we took a little bit from here. We took a little bit from there. And magic happens. She happened to have more magic than I did as, as far as money goes. But other than that, it happens. So sometimes the book that starts it is not the one that finishes my daughter loves The Worst Witch by Jill Murphy. And that's something similar. You get a girl going to um, a witch's school in this instance. And the, the most prominent thing is that the potions mistress is really horrible and dresses in black and is really severe. And we, every time we sort of read or watch the BBC productions, we're like, yeah, sounds very familiar. But I suppose you've there's only so much limited scope you've got for school stories anyway. Um, you know, the the friendships are all very much the same and the pressures are very much the same. And it's usually kids versus teachers. And if you throw magic in there as well, was it to say there are only a certain number of stories in the world? I guess people are always, like you say, going to be writing from the same sort of place with the same sort of inspirations. Exactly. Exactly. And it's up to the public to decide which ones they want more. That's all. Um, what annoys me is when people say, oh, I've never seen this before. Well, excuse me, I have. You know, I have. If you're a teacher and telling me you've never seen, um, you know, that witch story, I believe in the, those witch stories, they also take, they also go on a magical train from Victorian Station uh, on uh, on number 13 uh, line. So I think which is the same thing that's, that's in um, Harry Potter. So these things are there. These are magical things. If you're doing, if you decide you're going to write a magical um, school story, there are only so many things you do. You know, um, I think the thing that I wish I had invented from the Harry Potter thing is the game that they play. The, the magical game that they play is sort of like hockey uh, in the air. Ah, Quidditch. Yes. Yes. Well, I kind of feel like we've just crashed through the last few years of writing and poetry and owls and <laughs> romance and everything. It has been an utter joy to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us, Jane. My pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely. And don't forget, the book is out on the 14th of February. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.